There are times in my life where I have felt um, inadequate. How about you? Have you ever felt times in your life where you just feel inadequate, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the, maybe the skill or, or even the fortitude to move forward? And I'm just thinking of things in my life where I felt like, you know, I just didn't have the skill. God, why are you putting me through the gauntlet? Um, there was a time in seminary when I knew I needed a job. Everyone needs a job, amen? Well, uh, I needed a job because we had a baby coming, and my dad said, no man who has a baby coming doesn't have a job. So don't think God, God's just going to send money from the sky, and uh, you're going to trust while you go through seminary. Well, I took those words as good counsel, and so I began looking for a job while I was going through seminary. I found some weird jobs. Did you know I sold golf, golf clubs uh, on a... Uh, uh, 1-800 number, and they would uh, advertise these uh, diamond head golf clubs. I couldn't believe that I was working for this company, and I would sit in this little cubicle, and people would call in the 800 number and say, I would like to buy that $399 golf club. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Why would you want to buy a $399 golf club? Because I do, sir. I really do. I wasn't a good salesman then. And uh, uh, I quit the job uh, a week into it because I saw that uh, this was just not what, I wasn't making enough. And so I saw an ad in the newspaper. Uh, and uh, we were, at the time I was in seminary, I was trying to plant a church up in uh, northern Elgin. And I saw this little ad and it said, construction worker, needed, ASAP, <laughs> and this fax number. And I didn't have a, any skill in construction work. And so I, I went to a church where, that we were partnering with and used their fax machine. You know, back in the day, fax machines. Now we just email. And so I sent my, my, my resume. And the guy called me that evening. said, you're hired. I'm like, what? We have even the interview. He goes, I know everything about you. Oh, really? Well, show up in my office tomorrow. We'll talk about the the things that need to happen. Well, I showed up, this makeshift office in downtown St. Charles. And the uh, office was like this. Can you imagine? It wasn't, it wasn't even at all. So the, the, the desks were put up by little shims here and there. And I'm like, oh boy, this guy's from Mars. How am I going to, I'm, I'm going to work for him? Well, he was a Christian guy starting off in the steel industry. And he said, Joel, I, I want you to lead uh, estimating and project management. Uh, for Division 5. And I'm like, well, I don't have any skill or knowledge in construction. He goes, no problem. He gives me the stack of books on engineering and dealing with steel. He says, here you go. You got a week to study this stuff and, and come back and get ready to start helping me with uh, project management in Chicagoland. So I did. I worked really hard at studying plans, understanding takeoffs. Never done, never done that before. Inadequacy began to build up big time. Um, I, he would send me out on jobs and doing field measurements and didn't know about field measurements until he told me to do it and how to do it. Inadequacy built up even more. He dealt with construction, GC contractors, major contractors in the Chicagoland area. Some that uh, were like sharks, you know what sharks are. They come and eat you. They try to take all your money. And so he says, you got you to go and sit in their office and wait for the money to arrive at the close of the month. He goes, do I got to do that? You got to go do that. Take the titles and all that, sit there in the office and wait for that cash to come. Because we were dependent. And so I learned that inadequacy comes often in our life. So it doesn't matter if you are working in the marketplace because there are inadequacies in life that come and you may not know what to do and how to respond. And when I think about my own life and where I'm at today, 
I'm teaching. I'm teaching future students who are going to go off into pastoral work. And there's a sense for me, inadequacy has built up again. It's like, well, God, why have you called me to this place in this time in this ministry where, you know, I felt really good in pastoral work and doing things well and kind of, I had my groove and now I'm kind of displaced and getting stretched in different areas I've never been before and, and showing up in a classroom for a lot of people. Some are older than me and have a lot of experience, more than I do, and, and I'm teaching them God's word. Inadequacy builds up and so it is with the life of those who follow Jesus in Luke chapter 9. There's a sense of inadequacy that builds up in their life amongst the disciples. Most of them came from different backgrounds, and you know that. You got Matthew, the tax collector, who leaves his, his life of collecting taxes for Rome and follows Jesus. And you wonder, what was he doing afterwards? Following Jesus. Some probably depended on others for the, the proceeds to live and, and to provide for his family. But he left the life of tax collection to follow Jesus. You think of the other men who were fishermen. That's what they were used to. They knew how to fish. Catch people, inadequacy. Follow Jesus, inadequacy to build up. Leave everything behind, inadequacy. And so Jesus sets the pace for the disciples. If you want to follow me, if you want to be connected with me, I'm going to equip you so that you can equip others. That's inadequacy. Equip others? I mean, there are far better teachers and people that are gifted than I who, who should be teaching other people. And, I, and I've told my, my dean, I said, why did you choose me? I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't have any high degree. I, I didn't go to the most glamorous seminary to, to be learned and taught. I, I don't have a, a whole career of experience. He goes, yes, you do. You're a follower of Christ. Your adequacy comes from Christ. I, I think of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I, I didn't come from nobility. That's right, I didn't come from nobility. Did you? I'm an average Joe. You watch the television shows and you get to the idea. That's where I am. I, I, you know, I, I'm not wise according to worldly standards. Some people think I'm a, I'm a freak show because I've given my life to the Lord's calling. There's a difference. And, and my dependency is on Him. And I'm learning as I move along in this life that that's what it's about. So whether you're working in ministry for me, or for you who are working uh, eight to five, 60 hours a week, some of you are working long hours. And there are things that your employer has asked you to do and you're like, I'm not equipped for this. You are. Because your adequacy comes from who? Comes from God. Comes from God in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So chapter nine, we have this scene. It's a whole list of scenes that I'm gonna take you through five different scenes in this particular passage. And I've given you in the handout uh, the main uh, transitional uh, scenes that you see in this particular passage. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but we're going to end on five. And so let's look at the first one, the mission that, that Jesus sends his disciples on. Again, inadequacy in equipping others to do the work of the ministry. That's what he wants them to do. He wants them to go out and get catch people. I mean, this is a new task and a new ministry for them. A sense of inadequacy for me when working uh, with steel construction and working with union contractors, big time. Never done that before. Learn, could go back and do it again, would enjoy it. But inadequacy begins to uh, seep in if you do not trust that God will get you through. 
And he called the 12 together, verse 1, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he set them out to proclaim to the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there. Underline that. Stay there. And from there, depart. And whatever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The mission that Jesus gives to them is one of demonstrating, number one, is demonstrating great faith and in obedience is what Christ expects for all of us. It's demonstrating great faith and obedience. That's what Christ wants for you. Look at the passage. Don't miss it because I think the passage speaks for itself. He says what? I want you to go and proclaim. Underline that key word. It's an important word. Go proclaim. Go preach the gospel to people. People need to hear the gospel. They need to be saved. And when you go and you minister to people, I'm going to tell you you're going to enter into a lot of homes and a lot of situations are really ugly. People are ugly, aren't they? You're ugly too. And we carry a lot of baggage with us along the journey that just, that just seeps out. And so when you go and engage the world and you minister to people, you'll find out that it's, just, it's ugly out there. And he says there are people who have diseases and are demon-possessed and are filled with them, and they need to be healed. God needs to invade their life, and he's going to use you as a channel. Inadequacy? Big time. When you begin to equip others with the tools to do the work of ministry. He called the 12 together. He gave them power. Interesting, when you look at the other synoptic gospels, such as the similar gospels that seem to, to share what's going on in the life of Christ, uh, Luke is the only one that shares the word power here, and, and it's probably in line with his thought because he writes both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so when you were to, if you were going to do a, a full study of, of Luke's writing, you would look at Luke and then Acts together, and Luke is all about power. He's all about power and authority moving together. And so he sends these disciples out with such a process to, to move with authority and power over people. Proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. But notice what he says. He says, demonstrating great faith and obedience in Christ. That's what the mission is about. And some of you might have to go into dark places and and, and touch hurting people. And then we find out that we have to trust him in verses 3 through 4 just with daily provision, daily bread. You think about the Lord's Prayer. How many have ever recited that? We've recited that here at church uh, not too long ago. But you, you look at that last, one of the last phrase. Give us our daily what? Give us our daily bread. Now that's just like whoop, right over my head. Because I, I'm dependent on Joel a lot of time, right? Hey, amen? You're dependent on yourself. Well, I can go to Jewel. I can go to Walmart. I can pick up my peppers and my tomatoes and, and just list the things that you can do that seem just to work. But, but he says, I am sending you out. 
I'm sending you on a mission. This is what you're going to do. You're going to enter people's houses, and you're going to be dependent on them. I don't want you to take your wallet. I don't want to take you two pairs of clothing. I don't want you to even take a staff. I want you to go and trust what God's going to do and how he's going to open up the mission field for you in that town, in that community. That is demonstrating great faith and obedience. Big time. Trusting him when I go into dark places and touch hurting people because there are, he says there's going to be demons. There's going to be people, those who are hurting and sick. Daily needs being met, verses 3 through 4. That takes great faith. I mean, let's just think about that for a moment. If I were to tell you, if we had a church van here, after the morning service, we're going to hop in the van and enter into our cars and I'm going to take you to Chicago on the south side. You know, south side? Yeah, the south side. And I'm going to drop you down there by the, by the White Sox Stadium. You're going to go do ministry. And by the way, can I have your cell phone? Can I have your iPods? Can I have your laptops, your iPads, and your wallet? Oh, my wallet? Yeah, your wallet. Because you're just going to trust the Lord for your daily provision while you're doing the work of the ministry. You're going to trust that he's going to open, and you're going to trust that when he closes doors of ministry, that's what God wants for you. What do you mean? You're going to take my wallet. Because our dependency, dear ones, our, our dependency in many ways is our wallet. It's our debit card, right? And, and, and Jesus says, I want to strip that away in this passage, in the first scene here, in verses 3 through 4. Disciples, I want you to depend on me. The source of your adequacy comes from me. Be dependent on me. And then I leave you down there. I take your keys, <laughs> I take, and I leave you. I said, go do the work. And then I'll come back and find out what you're doing. And report on what God has done. You're like, you're nuts, Joel. You're totally nuts. I wouldn't do that. Why not? I, I've heard, I hear people doing this all the time. Francis Chan, some of you are familiar with his writings. He, he, I mean, he quit a large church in, in uh, uh, California, sold his house, packed it all up, uh, went out to the Asian countries, Indonesia, Japan, and, and China, and doing ministry, and just realized that his adequacy was on himself in many ways. And so he said, I'm just going to give it up. I'm going to trust the Lord for my daily provision. I'm going to trust him for my house, meaning where I'm going to live, who I'm going to uh, minister to. And that's when it's been his, really his call the last two years. And, and some people in the church world have attacked him and said, well, see, you're, you're, you're promoting a poverty gospel, trusting Jesus to give you your needs. Now, there's a sense that you shouldn't just walk out here and sell your house. Some of you won't be able to sell your house, by the way. Uh, you'll learn that. I'm not telling you tomorrow to go quit your job. That would be wrong. Amen? Jesus is not asking you to do that. But he's asking you to have great faith, great obedience, trust. What do you mean trust? Trust that your daily needs are going to be met through your boss through your employer, by the work that you do. That's why when you go to work, you work hard at the job that you're doing because you believe God's going to bless your hand and he's going to do it through a secular boss. It's not a problem with that. God does it all the time. And your advances, he does it. 
So I leave you in Chicago, and I, and, and, and I come down, and I find out that, Joel, God has been doing great things. My clothes that I've been wearing for the last two days, someone gave me their clothes. Ooh. But my needs have been met. Hey, we were doing ministry on this block, and, and this family invited us in for supper, and, and we ate dinner there, and our needs were met. Oh, Joel, the, 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 this day we found out we, we were, weren't sure how we are going to make it and get water. Someone delivered a whole case of water to us, cold, while we were walking the streets. Someone even gave us money so we could go to the store and buy something for our daily needs. Wow. Because that's what Jesus is saying in verses uh, 1 through uh, 6. He says, I want you to trust me. Be dependent on me as you go and do the work of the gospel ministry. But notice what he else he says in verse 5. He says, I want you to trust me when people insult you. Verse 5. Trust me when people insult you. What do you mean insult you? Look what he says. And whatever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Well, I thought they were to accept me. No. There are going to be times in your life when you work and you serve, especially in gospel ministry. When I talk about gospel ministry, I talk about the work you do in the church. There's going to be times that people are not going to accept the work. They're not going to accept the gospel. They're going to say, forget it. Hit the road, Jack. Don't come back no more. See that road over there? That's where I want you to be on. There's been students, as, as I've served as a youth pastor, students who would boldly get in your face and say, I do not want that. I do not want that. It's bull, they say. I don't want it. Get out of here. And, and so I've just learned to accept that as, as part of life, part of the work. There are people who are going to stand and oppose me as I go along. By the way, it is possible for some Christians to do the same thing that unchristian people do, oppose truth and receive insults. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Matthew writes this in regards to those who insult and those who persecute. He says in Matthew 10, 23, he says, when they persecute you in one town, I love this. Does he say stay there? He doesn't. He says flee, get out of there. If they're persecuting, go, get out of here. Why? He says, I say to you, you'll have, you will have to go through all the towns of Israel before the sun a man comes. He doesn't expect you to be beaten up. Now, there are times that he allows that to happen, but if people are rejecting you, that's a good sign for you to do what? To move toward another person. I had one person in my church, this is a godly woman, and uh, she would say, Pastor Joel, you know, I, I would go and, and talk to the neighbor across the street, and I'd bring them cookies and, and bread, and, and I, I'd try to talk to them about the gospel, and they would close the door. I, literally, they would close the door, Pastor. I'd go, well, okay. And I can't figure out why God won't open their hearts. I said, yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's just, I'm just mad. Man, I keep doing it. I said, have you ever thought about not doing it anymore and moving to the next neighbor? No. So she tried it the next day. <laughs> God bless her. I love the, the work that, that she was doing. And all of a sudden, the door opened up. When I talk about the door, the ministry opportunity opened up, and she was able to converse with the neighbor for the first time in, in years. And uh, 
developing. And, and you know what happens? They become a Christian. I said, sometimes God closes door in order to open up a door for you and to, and to find that your source of adequacy and equipping others to do the work comes from him and him alone. I need that in my life. I need open doors and closed doors to happen. Imagine they come back from one of the scenes in the Gospels. They said, Jesus, we healed people. Lame people were on the ground and we healed them. Blind people who couldn't see Jesus, we caused them to see again. Jesus, there were demon-possessed people, crazy people running around the town. And when we touched them, do you know what happened, Lord? Do you know what happened? And Jesus says, what happened? Well, the, the, the spirits came out of them. The demons left them. And Jesus says, disciples, don't rejoice that you can heal people. Don't rejoice in the fact that you can cause the lame to get up and walk. Don't rejoice that you can cause the demon to come out of that individual. But rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what he says. That your adequacy and your dependency comes from me. And your source of doing the work is in gospel work. Amen? That's what he says. And so he gives them this challenge, this mission. Some of you say, this is just nuts. Leave your staff behind. One gospel writer says that they were to take a staff. Take nothing on your journey, no money, no ATM cards, no credit cards, no cell phones, nothing. Take nothing with you. Your dependency is on me. I'll lead you away. Then he leads us to a second scene. It's the person. And, and, and Luke inserts this guy in here. His name is Herod. Some of you know who Herod is. But Herod is this individual that prepares us. It's preparing one another to expect obstacles to faith and the gospel. Preparing one another, number two, preparing one another to expect obstacles to faith and the gospel. Here is Herod. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Now, he says. You look at the word now. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was, underline it, perplexed. Now, that word just means he was disturbed. He was, he was, ooh, he was, he was, oh, if he could get a hold of Jesus, he would have. He was an upset guy. You know, and, and Herod was a, write this down, was a jealous, a jealous king, a jealous ruler. Uh, he, he hated his brother, his brother, on one occasion, was trying to get in position, and so he had his own men, Herod had his own men come and kill him in, in, in an evening hours. Uh, he was an adulterer, by the way. And uh, we, we get this when the scene of John the Baptist. But he didn't like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this eccentric preacher on the, on the corner uh, in the city of Chicago. Oftentimes when I go down there, you will see that these, these street preachers that yell. You ever heard of some of these street preachers? They actually get on boxes, and, and people are like, yeah, I like to hear. I mean, they're crazy people some ways because you wonder if you're going to get shot for some of the things that you say. But John the Baptist, we learn, is this guy, he wears camel, camel clothing, right? He eats locusts and honey. And imagine a beard, too. Okay, throw that in there as well. He was a Nazarite, lived near the Dead Sea, and just was a naturalist. You know anybody who's organic? Like straight organic? You, you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't go, no processed food. Just organic straight. I, I got a lot of friends like that. They're like, we can only eat organic, Joel. 
was that processed by who? Uh, well, this is the food we're having, guys. Well, we can't touch. And they'll go through the whole meal not eating anything because we bought it at Walmart and it was processed by Walmart. I said, you've got to be joking here. Well, we only eat organic food. Okay. Well, John the Baptist was an organic guy. He just was eccentric, lived off the fat of the land. But he was a bold preacher. Repent, right? Repent. Repent. And he would yell it. Turn from your wickedness, you brood of vipers. Whoa. <laughs> Martin Luther, in the, the days of the Reformation, um, got up on one of his Sundays and yelled at his church, and he called them buzzards. You buzzards. And I'm like, I wish I could do that. I did it now. But I wish I could have done that. And he goes, you want me to go to the next town? And I will because you don't want to hear what? You don't want to hear the truth. And, and so Martin Luther and John the Baptist, they knew they were going to meet up with people. Here's Herod. Herod comes along. And these are just natural people, people in government, people in politics, people in our neighborhoods who will do whatever it takes. They get perplexed by us. They get disturbed because we carry our Bible underneath our arm and we head off to church and we talk about Jesus and how Jesus provides for us and gives us what we need and we trust him. So people think we're lunatics in many ways. At the same time, they're like, wait a minute. He's doing this. He's experienced blessing. He's experiencing, well, sometimes he's experienced trials, but it seems like he always gets back on his two, two feet and God blesses even more. Hmm. Oh, if I could just take my hands and wring them a little bit and slap them here too. That's what they do a lot of times. Trust. Trust God. Trust God for our work. Trust God for our daily provision. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God because you have to get to the point that your adequacy is dependent solely on who? Solely on God and God alone. Even when you're doing the same task. The same task. Some, I think of, uh, I was telling my wife the other day, I really love farming. I love farming. I, I, wish, I wish my dad you know, grew up in the, in the country here and got his plot of land and had his, his combine. And, and that's just, I just inherited along the way like some, some people do. I just love, I love seeing farm, farm life. But you know, it's the same thing in many ways, year in and year out. I don't know, we have farmers here? You know, and you know what I'm talking, it's dependency on who? It's dependency on who? Who are you dependent on? You're dependent on God who sends rain. You're dependent on the instruments that you use week in and week out, month after month, year after year. And it can get old, can it? And you can lose that source of adequacy. Lord, I'm no longer dependent on you. I'm dependent on myself. Now, there is a sense here, the person preparing one another to expect obstacles to faith and the gospel, verses 7 and 9. We know that Harry doesn't like John the Baptist, and so what does he do? Well, because John calls him an adulterer, <laughs> that's what gets his head chopped off, right? And so the woman, uh, uh, Herod's adulterer, you know, the person he was having an adulterous relationship with, an improper relationship, says, give me John the Baptist's head. I want it on a platter. You got it. We'll do it. But then at the same time, he didn't want to do it because you, you need to remember that Herod was half Indomian and half Jew. He had a mother who was Jewish, and he didn't want to cause disruptus in the Jewish life and community. And to kill their prophet mm, was to disrupt the kingdom. But he did it anyways, as a promise. He killed him. Then all of a sudden, 
in verse uh, 8 and 9, he says, and, and he says, and he was perplexed because it was said, look at the words, by some that John had been raised from the dead. Uh-oh, this God is going to come back and deal with me. Huh? By some, Elijah had appeared by others, and one of the prophets of old has risen. Herod belonged to the, to the sect of the Sadducees. You remember the Sadducees didn't believe in, what did they didn't believe in? The resurrection. They were very superstitious about the resurrection. And all of a sudden, people are coming. I mean, the disciples are being sent out. They raise the dead. They cause, I mean, this is very superstitious to Herod to see these miraculous uh, events that Jesus is doing, raising a boy who's been sick. Lazarus is now healed in John 11. He doesn't like this. So, what does the text say according to Luke's words? He says, he says this, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Look at the last phrase, and he sought to see him. He made it a point to be a distraction to Jesus' ministry. There are times in our lives that people will distract us from purpose, from the job that we have to do, whether it's at work, whether it's here at church and doing the work of the gospel. There will be people who will distract us. There will be things in our life that will distract us, but namely it's a person here. And so Luke inserts this as a way of preparing us to meet obstacles in our lives, such as people, people. Notice Jesus' words in the following chapter, chapter 13, a couple chapters later. He says, at this very hour, some Pharisees came along and said to him, get away from here, Lord, for Herod wants to kill you. Verse 32, I love these words by Jesus. And he said to them, go tell that fox. I love that. Jesus swore. That was the way he swore. Go tell that fox. Oh, he was. He was a sly fox. He said, behold, I cast out demons from poor cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I will finish my course. You go tell that fox who, who is actually king and lord. Your dependency comes from him. As you equip others for the work that you've been called to do, what is your, where does your dependency come from? Your dependency comes from who? Comes from God and God alone, even when you meet opposition. Even when you trust him for your daily provision of needs and trusting and accepting, okay, the mission is given to me, I need to go. But notice the third thing. This, the third scene is the retreat. Sometimes when we serve others, serving others must have frequent getaways. You and I, when we serve with our whole heart and we go in and we serve day after day, night after night, Day after day again. This is what we call vacations, right? Retreats. And I think about people who serve in the church. It is the statement's true. 10% of the people do the brunt of the work in the church. And I believe that statement is, is rightly right. If statistics are true, I think it's correct. Few people do the work. Some of us do double duty, triple duty quadruple duty and we do it and we do it and we do it and and it's like well you know god god you know god says we have to do it and i'm afraid if we don't do it it won't get done i've heard that statement before but, but let it die 
let it die. <gasps> We've always done it that way. Did you know the last, ten dying, the last ten words of a dying church is we've always done it that way before? It's true. Let it go. Sometimes you have to do a retreat. Sometimes you have to go into the desert and find some recouping time. Some of you, I've, I've talked to you over the last several months, and I find this you know, great encouragement on how you go about doing retreats in your own life. Some of you like taking long walks on country roads by yourself and talking with God. Those are simple retreats. Jesus knew what it was like to do some retreats. He would go away from the pressing needs of people because people's needs were great. They would touch him. Who touched me? The disciples like, you're nuts, Jesus. Everyone's touching you. No, there was one person that touched me. And my power what? My power went out to her. It overwhelmed Jesus. Remember, he was 100% man and 100% God. He was acquainted with our suffering, acquainted with all that we go through in life, and he got tired. He got tired, grew thirsty. That's why he went to a woman at the well in John 4 to seek after water. He was tired. Jesus slept on a boat. (laughs) What a great opportunity to teach his disciples about dependency on him. He's sleeping. He says, we have to go to where? We have to go to the other side. We're going to do some ministry. And all of a sudden, the storm comes up, and Jesus is... And and he's sleeping on a pillow. And the disciples come, and they wake him up with force. And they say this statement, don't you care? Don't you care that there's a storm and we're going to die? And Jesus gets up and says, peace be still. Peace. Disciples, know that your dependency is on me. Your dependency in this life is on me and me alone. Peace be still in the storm. They accused Jesus that they're going to die. And Jesus made the statement, we've got to go to where? We're going to go to the other side. Don't you think Jesus is going to get them to the other side? Everyone should be saying, of course, that's what he said. If that's what he said, he's going to do it. But their adequacy begins to look at themselves because they realize they can't solve the storm. They can't keep the water from coming into the boat. They do whatever they have to do, and they realize, wait a minute, we got the Lord of the universe on our boat, and he's sleeping. Wait a minute. He shouldn't be sleeping. He should be helping us. Jesus often slipped away from the crowds to recuperate, to find some time to be alone to escape from the busyness of life. Why? Because it's so easy to get burned out. You're like, have you spo- are you speaking from experience? I think so. There are some times where you're going and you're going and you're going and you just burn out. It's like a roller coaster. And then and yet you never go back up because it can lead, burnout can lead to depression. It happened in the life of Elijah. Remember the great scene in 1 Kings chapter 19? He just had slaughtered all the the prophets of Baal, and Jezebel is now after him. Great story. Where does he go? He's depressed, and he flees into the wilderness, and he sleeps. 
Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate form of, of Jesus, comes in the Old Testament and cooks a dinner for him. He says, get up, get up and eat. Get up and eat. Some of us just need to flee and find some time alone with God. Some of you have your chairs in your house. No one can sit in it, but it's yours. And that's where you study the scriptures. Some of you might have a desk where you open up God's word. Some of you do prayer walks around different parts of your town and community. And you pray for homes and you pray for yourself and your family. Those are great times for God to do his work because your dependency is on him at that point in time. Some of you love retreats where you actually can go on a retreat and get away. I mean, those are great experiences of when a church could do that. But let me give you some suggestions. Let me give you some suggestions how you can retreat like Jesus does in the Gospels. Look what he does. He says, on their return, and the apostles told him all that they had done, verse 10, he took them, say, look what he says, he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. It's the southern region of the Jordan River. Really a desolate place, okay? This is where he's going to retreat. So let me give you some suggestions that you can do. Number one, find a quiet place that has few distractions. That means don't take your, your phone with you. I have my phone all the time. Leave naked without your phone. Try it. Just do it. Tell, your, tell, tell the person what you're doing. So if it's your wife, your husband, hey, I'm going to be gone for an hour. I'm going to go on a retreat, a mini-hour retreat. So I'm going to leave my phone, okay? Now, if I'm not back in an hour and a half, you'll know, you know maybe you need to come looking for me. Tell them where you're going to go. Great time to do it. So choose a quiet place, a few distractions. Go to a park. Don't take anything with you but maybe a notepad in your Bible. Choose a safe place. Don't go into a hard place where there's crime. I mean, that's, don't do that. Okay? Don't go to the east side of Aurora and I'm going to go walk around this area without someone going with you. Select a place where you can be loud. You ever like being loud? Like yell? Like, what do you mean yell? Well, I just try it. It's yelling. Yelling like at the top of your lungs? Yeah, it's, it's very therapeutic. Think about it. But loud, just talking loud. Just, just you and God, right? Between you and God, you're talking to him. And, and if you're you know, at a place where other people are like looking at me, and there's something wrong with you. Why are you having conversation? Like, there's no one. You don't have an earpiece on. It's like, who are you talking to? Uh, okay, so uh, choose a place, maybe like at a park where you know there's no one there. Uh, there's a great park on Creek Road in, I guess, playing a Little Rock. You go down Chicago Road and where Denny Hastert lives, okay? There's a whole woods there. You can do a trail walk. Something to do. Read about the history about the homestead there. But I, I found when I've gone there, sit underneath the pavilion, just read my Bible. You're like, why work? Well, on your way home from work, stop there and tell your wife I'm going to be an hour late. Vice versa. Okay? Communicate what, when you're going to do it. Uh, you may have to space it out so that you can allow your spouse to have time too if you have kids. So select a place where you can be loud and also quiet at the same time. And choose a place where there's limited temptation to occur. Okay? So that's why I say leave your phone in the car, go for a walk, pray, take a piece of notebook with you and maybe write down some thoughts that God wants you to do. So this is what I do. I pray for situations and people needing prayer. So I, I pray for things going on in my own life, questions that I have. 
Lord, I have these questions. I need, I need answers, and I may not get them right away. But then I, I, lead, I leap then into praying for others. And, and it's, this, it rejuvenates my energy and passion for people and serving people. Um, I pray for a decision that requires an answer. Lord, as I'm dealing with this conflict or this problem, I need you to answer it. I'm going to trust you in this retreat, this mini retreat with you. You call it devotionals, having a devo time. I call it a retreat because that's what Jesus did. He went away. He found some time. If you like fishing, hey, you can fish and enjoy company with God. Some of you men like fishing. Some of you women, I think, might like fishing too. I don't know. So I don't want to leave you out. But, you know, go, go fishing. Think about what's God doing. What is God doing in your life? It is. It brings strength and encouragement for you. That's what he does with his disciples. He teaches them. You want to have adequacy in me? This is what I do, he says. I go away. When ministry gets tough, when people's needs are overwhelming and, and, and they're responding and, and great revivals happen, I got to get away. I got to slip away. He leads us then to the next scene, the miracle. Performing impossible works can only be accomplished by God's power. The miracle. Performing impossible works can only be accomplished by God's power. You're familiar, I hope, with the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 people appears in all of the Gospels. It must have a reason for that. Uh, it must have been a great event to see 5,000 people. By the way, it wasn't just 5,000 people. It was a many, many thousands of people because they're not counting in the women and the children as well. So you have 5,000 men who are feeding plus their families. We're talking a great catering event for my brother. This is a great catering event that he would love to do. And, and so he goes with his few pork chops and his grill and it's pork and beans and coleslaw, and he shows up at the event, and he finds out there's 5,000 people, not the 100 that they said that they invited. There's 5,000 people. Now, my brother's been to some catering events where the numbers have been off. I'm telling you, that just, that just sears anger through a cook when he knows there's not going to be enough food for the event. Always have plenty of food when you invite people over for what? For supper. But then when the numbers are off, when they told him there was only going to be 300 people at an event and there's 800, your heart begins to race and it begins to race. And then you begin to say, oh my goodness, we're going to lose the, we're going to lose the event. We're never going to be asked again. There's been times in his life where he just had to trust God. Uh, he does profound miracles in many ways partly because the event is close and he can send a worker to go back to the shop and do what needs to be done and bring the food as quick as possible. There are other times where it just looked very bleak. I think of the summer months where you're outside, coleslaw, mayonnaise, you never have mayonnaise out in 100 degree weather and it starts to just get all quaggy looking and people are like, am I going to eat that? And you know that you've got to bring extra and it's got to last. Well, here it is. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Remember? They took them. He withdrew. They come back. He says, and all these people begin to welcome them. And he begins to, to cure those who had need of healing. Now, on the day, he said to them, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and great provision, for we are here in a, a desolate place. But he said to them, he said to the disciples, 
You give them something to eat. You do what seems to be impossible. You do it. And the disciples love to send people away. Just like little children that come to Jesus, what do they like to do? He's too busy for them. Send them where? Send them away. When you have to do a miracle, you have to trust God. You have to, when you are asked to perform an impossible work that only can be accomplished by God's power, that is true obedience and finding your adequacy is dependent on God and God alone. All four gospels record this. Outside of the resurrection, the greatest of all the miracles, Jesus is raised from the dead. This is a great miracle that takes place because all the people sit down and he says to me, says to us, and he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. But Lord, we can't feed all these people. Yes, you can. If your adequacy is dependent on me, you can feed them. Now, he was trying to teach them a lesson. It is true that they only had some small loaves and fishes that were there. And it's true they had a lot of things going on. Jesus was committing them, listen, your adequacy is on me. I'll do a profound miracle before you. And so he has them sit down, right? They sit down and they pass out the food and people ate and ate and ate and had their bellies filled because on one occasion in John chapter 6 and verse 66, because he said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and there are people who walk away. I don't want to do that. They had their bellies filled. They just wanted their bellies filled and be blessed. But they didn't really want to follow Jesus. So they had him sit down, they ate, and even have some leftovers for the disciples. When I grew up in, the, you know, working for a family business, and I would go to school, and uh, we didn't have a whole lot of, I mean, when, you're, uh, when you own your own company, like small businessmen, you, you pretty much live off what you bring in. They don't make it rich. Some people do, but I, I know that my dad, I mean, he just worked hard, worked hard, long, owned a grocery store, worked hard, long hours. And, and so what food we brought home was leftovers. And I always thought leftovers are, ew, leftover pork chops. I mean, just coming out of your ears. And I would take it to school and eat it for lunch. And people are like, what's wrong with you, dude? You're like eating pork chops. You know, that's like, we eat sandwiches. I'm like, you know what? There's nothing wrong with pork chops. Actually, it's pretty good. But after a while, it got really old because tasted the same way, week in and week out. But as I grow older now, I realize that that was the daily provision of food, of trusting God. And when we didn't have a lot, it was giving what we needed for that day. Give us our daily bread, trust me, put your adequacy in me, and I will make, I will help you get through the day and be successful. Performing an impossible work can only be done by God's power. And then he moves to the fifth scene, and it's this confession that, that Peter announces. Remember, Herod is upset. He's upset that Jesus is gaining a lot of fame. And he comes to Peter, verse 18, and he was praying alone with the disciples with him. He asked Peter, who do the crowds say that I am, verse 18? Who do the crowds say that I am? Well, number five, accepting Jesus as the only Savior and Lord is the greatest equipping experience for all of us to have. Peter says, you are what? 
in Matthew 18. You are 16. You are the you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Christ, and Jesus says, Blessed, blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Berjona. For man didn't reveal that but who? But God. And one of the greatest blessings that you and I can have is to see a person come to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. And I don't know if you've ever had that privilege. In the middle of a Sunday school class, I remember teaching, and it had nothing to do with sin, and nothing to do with faith. Nothing. We were, we were talking about, I don't even remember now, but I, I do remember the scene. This boy starts crying in the middle of Sunday school class. A high schooler. And I'm like, oh boy, what do I do? I stopped. And, I, and, and his name was Tim. And I said, Tim, what's going on? He goes, I've realized that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a savior. I've been living a lie and walking this lie for I don't know how many years. And something you said in the Sunday school lesson just spoke. And I realized that Jesus is Lord. There was not a, there was not, a, I mean, there was just tears began. All the high school were like, some were like, you know, strange thing going on here. Others just began to like, God was working. And when all of a sudden a person says, Jesus is Lord, that is the best equipping experience that you and I can be called to do, to lead someone, to help someone understand the gospel. And, and, and Peter understands it. I mean, he's been with Jesus. He sees the miracles. He's even performed some of his own. He's seen the feeding of the 5,000. So Peter, at this point, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are Lord. And my advocacy comes from you and you alone. It's a powerful thing when we thrust our allegiance toward Jesus. And we place our trust in him that he will get us through the day. And we find that we don't come from nobility. And the world looks at us, they, don't, they look at it from worldly standards. And they say, look at that person. How can they trust Jesus? Because Jesus is the best thing that you can trust. You can bank on it. You can bank on it. Even when Farmers and Traders Bank in Shabana closes, you can bank on the fact that Jesus will never let you become bankrupt without him. You can trust him and put your allegiance in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we think of these uh, stories, and maybe we, uh, they're old to us. So, Father, I speak to that person who says, that's old. I know that story in and out. Do a work in their life do a work in their life. Maybe uh, you are a person today who's never trusted in Christ and your adequacy is in yourself and you're looking at your experience and your skill, your trade, your job, your family. And Jesus says, your adequacy needs to come from me. Your dependency needs to come from me. If you're going to influence others and you're a Christian, you need to know that your adequacy comes from God. So I speak to you who have not trusted Christ. May today be the day of salvation. May you come and trust him. Lord, I need you in my life. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me.
cleanse me from all my wickedness, my anger, my pride, my self-reliance, and move me from self-reliance to dependency on you. That be your prayer. The Bible says if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And he will come in and he'll take control. Father, thank you for the way we can de be dependent on you. Force us to do it. Cause us to do this, to trust, to move from complacency and self-reliance to dependency and trust on you. May you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.
how you love me.